Welcome to the teaching ministry of Calvary Port St. Lucie. Please join lead pastor Mike Wiggins for the message, Matters of the Heart. All right, I want to start today by telling you about the first king of Israel. So during the 11th century BC, King Saul reigned as the first king over Israel. And this guy was something else as far as his outward appearance. Concerning King Saul, the Bible says this. It says, there was not a man among the people of Israel that were more handsome than Saul. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. And so Israel's first king, 11th century BC, this guy on the outside was tall and handsome, and I'm sure that he was the heartthrob back in the day for all the young ladies in Israel. But even though on the outside, Saul was very impressive, on the inside, in the heart, you need to know that Saul left a lot to be desired. You see, in his heart, Saul was pretty pathetic. This guy was prideful, he was angry, he was dishonest, he was weak. All those qualities certainly have no place for anybody who's in any position of leadership, especially those who are ruling nations. So in time, what was on the inside of Saul actually came out. How many of you guys know that what's inside always comes out, right? And so what was on the inside of him eventually came out. He sinned over and over, disobeying the Lord. And so eventually God said, I'm done with you. And God rejected Saul as the king of Israel. And so after the Lord rejected Saul, he told his prophet Samuel. And by the way, if you've never read First and Second Samuel, you gotta read it. Talk about, talk about a page turner. It's just an amazing uh, couple books in the Bible. The stories are, will just keep you um, uh, enthralled the whole way through. But after the Lord rejected Saul, he, he told his prophet Samuel, Samuel, I want you to fill your horn with oil and I want you to anoint a new king over Israel. I've chosen one of Jesse's sons. Jesse lives over in Bethlehem and so Saul got on his donkey, he went down to Bethlehem he called a great feast, a great sacrifice among the people. He invited Jesse and his sons and Saul, the elderly prophet, sat waiting for the voice of the Lord to determine who the next king of Israel would be. And so Saul's seven sons passed by Samuel. I'm sorry, um, um, Jesse, uh, Jesse's seven sons passed by Samuel. And as he's there, the first son, the oldest son, Eliab, comes by and as Samuel sees Eliab, the firstborn son, he's thinking, man, this guy, this has got to be him. Because Eliab was much like Saul. Eliab was tall, he was strong looking, he was handsome. And so Samuel's thinking in his mind, surely this guy is the next king of Israel, but the Lord told Samuel this. Check this out on your screen. This is uh, 1 Samuel 16, seven. The Lord said to his prophet, as he's looking at Eliab, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord, help me out, looks on the heart. See, ladies and gentlemen, especially in our culture today here in America, we're all about the outward appearance. 
We're always looking at people, judging them according to their outward appearance. How many of you know that you're here today and you're gone tomorrow, right? And so God doesn't look at the outward appearance. God looks at what's important. God sees right into your heart and he sees right into my heart. And that day, Jesse made all seven of his sons pass by Samuel and the Lord told Samuel, his prophet, very clearly, I have not chosen any of these guys. And so Samuel's perplexed and he looks over at Jesse and he says, Jesse, are all your sons here? And it was like an afterthought. Jesse's like, oh yeah, my youngest son. He's out in the field taking care of the sheep. And Samuel said, well, go get him. And so Jesse sent a messenger out to, you guys know his name? David. Scholars believe he's a teenager at this time in the Bible. And so here comes a messenger. He's all excited. Hey, Samuel's here. Everybody knows Samuel. He's the prophet. Samuel's here. He wants to see you. David doesn't know what's going on. And so he runs in from the field. And as he stood before the elderly prophet, God spoke into Samuel's heart. And he said, arise, anoint him. He's the one. And Samuel, looking at David, must have thought, what in the world am I hearing from God here? And so he gets up, he takes his ram's horn filled with olive oil, he pours it over young David's head, and the olive oil goes down from his hair, not on his beard, he's a teenager, over his peach fuzz. <laughs> Just right down. And David's like, what is going on here? And the Bible says the spirit rushed upon David. You see, even though he was the youngest, even though he wasn't as physically built as his big brothers, even though he's just a shepherd boy, here's what you and I need to know. David had heart. And that's why God chose him. That's why God used him. Why did David become so great? Here's why. If you're with me, say amen here. Because every once in a while when I'm studying, the Holy Spirit will witness in my heart what I'm typing. And this is the sentence right here that the Lord was witnessing to me about. Why did David become so great? Here's why. Because of inward qualities like humility, loyalty, courage, and passion for God. Humility, loyalty, courage, and passion from God. Paul tells us in the New Testament that when God had removed Saul, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse. Please finish the rest of the sentence. A man after my heart. Why did God reject Saul? Because Saul was prideful and angry and dishonest. He was weak in the, in the heart. Why did he choose David? Because J David was humble and loyal and courageous and had a passion for God. And even though you look at his entire reign, even though you see that this guy David was far from perfect, he went down as the greatest king in Israel's history. Saul was impressive on the outside. David was impressive on the inside because he was a man after God's own heart. You see, it's a matter of the heart. Now you fast forward a thousand years from the story I just told you and you arrive at the first century AD. You arrive at Mark chapter seven. You arrive at the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's Jesus in the pages of the Bible 
His fame is growing more and more every day. He's the talk of the town. Everybody's talking about Jesus and word of Jesus gets down to Jerusalem where the big wigs are, the Sanhedrin, the scribes, the Pharisees. And so they hear about this itinerant Galilean preacher up in the hills and they send an official delegation of scribes and Pharisees to go investigate Jesus. That's where we are in our Bible. Let's pick it up now in verse one. So Mark 7, verse 1, if you're looking at that passage, say amen. Amen. This is what we do, ladies and gentlemen, most of the time here. We just go through the Bible verse by verse. And so now when the Pharisees gathered to Jesus, when some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, (laughs) that is, unwashed, I'm gonna explain this in a moment, but again, here we have an official delegation sent from Jerusalem to investigate Jesus. They're going to sit in judgment of Jesus. But by the end of the study today, Jesus is gonna sit in judgment of them. So by way of review, who were the scribes and Pharisees? I know most of you don't know this, but we have visitors every week. The scribes were the interpreters of the written law. That's the Torah. Right, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the Pentateuch, first five books of your Bible called the Torah. They were the interpreters, they were the lawyers, they were the experts in the written law. That's a good thing. God's word is always a good thing. Here's the problem. They were also the interpreters, the lawyers of what's known as the oral law or the tradition of the elders. I'll explain that in a moment. In the meantime, who were the Pharisees? The Pharisees were a sect of the separatists who enforced those verbal or oral laws and they emphasized what kind of righteousness? Self-righteousness. And so here they come from Jerusalem up to Capernaum, the home base of Jesus' ministry. They're ready to investigate Jesus. And instead of focusing on Jesus' amazing sermons, That we're all about loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. All about loving your neighbor as yourself. Instead of focusing on that, instead of focusing on Jesus' amazing miracles, the fact that he's causing the blind to see and the deaf to hear and the mute to speak and paralyzed people to get up and walk, the fact that he's lifting people up from the depths of despair to the heights of joy, this official delegation, instead of focusing on those things, they decide to make a mountain out of a molehill. They decide to focus on the fact that the the Lord's disciples, they don't wash their hands before they eat. And I'm thinking, what is up with these guys? Now, hopefully we all wash our hands before we eat, right? Hopefully we all wash our hands a number of times during the day. We do that for hygiene purposes. That's not what the religious rulers were concerned about. They're not concerned about hygiene. They're not concerned about the spreading of germs. They're concerned about a ceremonial ritual that was part of, listen to this, the tradition of the elders. And that's exactly what verses three and four say. Please look at it. It says, for the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the what? Tradition of the elders. I had that marked in my Bible, underlined, just so I can always differentiate between man's rules 
and God's word. Verse four, and when they come from the marketplace, these scribes and Pharisees, they do not eat unless they wash. Okay, the idea there, again, is not hygiene. No, when you go to the marketplace, man, you might come in contact with a Gentile and become ceremonially unclean. When you're at the marketplace, even worse, you might come into contact with a Samaritan, a mixed breed. And so you can't get that ceremonial defilement all over you, so you gotta make sure that you wash. But not just your hands. Look at verse uh, four again. Um, They do not eat unless they wash, and there are many other traditions that they observe, such as washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And so they're all under these man-made rules. And the one that's highlighted here in the Bible is the ritual of hand-washing. And so the ritual of hand-washing was in two parts. Okay, so if you wanted to obey the tradition of the elders, these man-made rules, you came and your buddy had a big pot of water and you put your fingers up. It's gotta start with your fingers up. And they pour the water over your fingers down and it drips off your wrists. And not until that water drips off your wrists are you ready for part two. Because if you invert your hand too soon before the water drips off your wrist and the water's going down, it ceremonially cleansed this part of your hand. But if you do this too soon, then that water that's been defiled goes back over the clean part, that's no good. You keep your fingers up till the water's off your wrists, that's part one. Then part two, you put your fingers down, they pour the water over it again, you make a fist with one hand and you do this, then you make a fist with the other hand and you do this, and then you have kept their man-made rule. Some of the rabbis made some ridiculous statements about this whole ceremony of hand-washing. Listen to this, and I'm quoting. He who eats with unwashed hands sins as much as he who lies with a harlot. That's what some of the rabbis taught. So if you don't go through this ceremony, it's just as bad if you go down and get a prostitute somewhere. Another rabbi says, and I quote, whoever has his abode in the land of Israel and eats his common food with rinsed hands may rest assured that he shall obtain eternal life. And so they taught, if you live in Israel, the promised land, and you follow our rules, you're guaranteed a spot, man, you got eternal life. Now all of this nonsense was part of what's known as the oral law. Okay, and so I got some explaining to do, stay with me here, but the Jews in Jesus' day, they had two things. They had the written law, and by the way, they still do today. They had the written law, that's the Torah, that's the commands of who? Okay, so help me out, answer out loud. Good or bad? Good. God's word is good. It's always good. Here's the problem. They added to that the oral law, the tradition of the elders. And that was not the commands of God. That was the commands of men. The whole ceremonial practice of hand washing was not part of the written law. The whole thing where every Jew has to do this, it's not part, it's not even in the Bible. It's part of the oral law. And so in addition to the written word of God, the Pharisees taught in Jesus' day 
that when God gave Moses the written law, remember 1500 BC, um, coming down Mount Sinai, two tablets, you guys remember all that, all that? Okay, so they say in addition to God giving Moses the written law, God also gave Moses the oral law. In other words, God verbally explained how to interpret his laws. And supposedly, Moses handed this tradition down to Joshua, and Joshua handed the traditions, verbal, oral laws, to the rabbis, and the ancient rabbis went from rabbi to rabbi to rabbi to rabbi for 1,500 years until you come to the first century AD, and this is what Jesus is dealing with. He's dealing with a religious culture that is dead. And so, by the first century AD, the Jews had all of these verbal laws that, here's the problem, they had all these verbal laws that they said was equal in authority to God's word. These laws dictated every part of their lives. It became a heavy burden on their necks. And by the way, they were eventually written down in history. Around 200 AD, they were written in what's called the Mishnah. And the Mishnah, of course, is part of the Talmud, which Jews still revere today. So back to our story. Here you have the scribes and the Pharisees. They're coming down from Jerusalem. Actually, everything always comes down from Jerusalem, even though Galilee is up. They're coming down from Jerusalem. They're there to investigate Jesus with their noses up in the air. They say now to Jesus in verse five, why, Jesus, do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the who? Elders, the oral law, but eat with defiled hands. And Jesus said to them, here we go. Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you, who? <laughs> Hypocrites, the gloves are coming off now. You know why, everybody look at me for a second. You know why Jesus gets upset here? Because he has no time for legalism. Well, did Isaiah the prophet say of you hypocrites, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their what's heart, far from me? Their heart, it's a matter of the heart, Jesus says. Verse seven, in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God in order to hold to the tradition of men. And so the Pharisees were all concerned about their man-made rules, but Jesus points them right back to the word of God. Check it out. He says, this people honors me with their lips. He's, he's quoting from Isaiah chapter 29, 13. God's word. This is not man-made rules. This is God's word. Jesus is always pointing to God's word. This people honors me with their lips externally, but in the heart, man, their hearts are far from me. Now, whenever you see the word heart in the Bible, it's not talking about the physical organ that's pumping blood through our arteries and veins. Whenever you see the word heart in the Bible, it actually means this. It means the seat of the spiritual life. Okay, so we all know that we're material beings, we're physical, but how many of you guys know you got a soul? Right, you got an immaterial part in there. And so when the Bible talks about the heart, it's speaking of the seat of the spiritual life, the soul or mind as it is the fountain and seat of the thoughts 
and passions, etc., etc. And so by the first century AD, Judaism had lost its heart and Jesus is grieved over this. And so Jesus takes off his gloves and he decides we're gonna deal with this right here and right now. And so what does he do? He quotes the word of God. By the way, how many of you guys believe this is our final authority for all matters of faith and practice? Okay, so he quotes from the word of God and he says, look again at verse six, quoting Isaiah, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Now please, please, please pay attention to verse seven because we, we're guilty of this right here. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of who? The commandments of men. Ladies and gentlemen, let's apply this right now. The church has been guilty of violating Mark 7, 7. Number one, the Roman Catholic Church. What, what, what have they decided to do in their doctrine? What they have decided to do is to take their ch church tradition. That means their official rulings from their church councils. And by the way, they have this doctrine that when the Pope speaks about matters of faith, what he says is perfect. It's infallible. And so when the church makes decisions on matters of faith, it's called Catholic tradition, here's what they do. They elevate that tradition to equal authority with the word of God. And so they begin to teach doctrines that are not found in the word of God, like purgatory. That in addition to heaven and hell, there's another place where you have to go and be made perfect before you can get to heaven. Like praying to Mary and the saints, like transubstantiation, like baptismal regeneration, like sacraments infusing grace upon you. And so how do, how do they get away with this? They elevate, just like the Jews of old, they elevate their church tradition to the same authority as the word of God. Now, I grew up in a Catholic home. I thank God for the fact that the Catholic church taught me from when I was just a little kid all the way up through my teenage years, the Jesus of the Bible. I'm so grateful for the Nicene Creed. We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ the only begotten of the Father. Listen to this. God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, one in being with the Father. Through him, all things are made. For us men and for our salvation, he came down from heaven by the power of the Holy Spirit. He was born of the Virgin Mary, became man for our sake. He was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered, died, and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in fulfillment of the scriptures. He ascended to the right hand of the Father. He's coming again in glory to judge living in the dead. Ladies and gentlemen, that's the Jesus of the Bible. Amen. And I thank God for that. I praise God for that because that was in my head from the time I was a little kid, but there's a problem. They also elevate their church tradition to the same equal authority as the word of God. And I can't accept that. And neither should you. And so thank God 
for certain men like Martin Luther who came along in the 16th century and said, no, church tradition is not equal authority. Sola scriptura, scripture alone, is the basis for all matters of faith and practice. Now, before we say too much against the Catholics, <laughs> we Protestants are just as guilty of violating verse seven. Okay, so before we go to verse eight, I gotta ask you the question. Do we sin the same way the Pharisees sinned? Okay, are you, are you guys ready to apply the word of God here? Okay, so here we go, just, just let, let's do a heart check. Do we go through religious motions while our hearts are far from God? Right, do we come into church, for example, and the, the worship team is here, they're pouring out their hearts to the Lord, leading us into worship, but we know our, we're not in fellowship with the Father because of some sin going on in our lives, and so yeah, we sing words, we honor God with our lips, but our hearts, so far from God. By the way, I heard that somebody in our church flipped off a cop. Can you believe that? And you know why I say that publicly? Because that is dead wrong. What if that police officer doesn't know the Lord yet and a member of this church flips the cop off? You know what that tells me? That people come in here to this church and they go through religious motions and their hearts are a million miles away from God. Are we guilty of the same sins? Number two, do we pray rote prayers from memory with little or no passion? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Do we, we do that? And we're not even thinking about what we're saying? Number three, this is what we're most guilty of. Do we emphasize man-made rules? And so I, after I left the Roman Catholic Church, I started going to other Protestant churches and some of them were very legalistic. In other words, these Protestant churches taught as doctrines the commandments of men. That means that they took their man-made rules, put them equal with the word of God and they tried to put people on a guilt trip to follow their man-made rules. Maybe you come from a similar background. You know, you hear stuff like this in legalistic churches. Women wearing jewelry and makeup, it's wrong. Guys, you can't have long hair. If that hair goes over your ears, you're in sin, brother. You need to cut that hair over your ears. You need to get it tapered up in the back. You need to look like a man, right? <laughs> Women who wear jeans, that's the sin. And they go back to the Old Testament law, which we're not under law, we're under grace, and they pull out a clothing restriction verse from Leviticus or Deuteronomy or wherever it is that a man shouldn't wear what a woman wears or a woman shouldn't wear what a man wears, and they say, you're wearing jeans, woman, you are in sin, especially if you have those holes, oh my goodness, you are so worldly. <laughs> By the way, some of you guys who are new to church and you don't have that in your background, you ought to get on your knees and thank God. Because that stuff is prevalent in 2018. Drums and electric guitars, that's a sin. Man, you're only supposed to have an organ up here and we're only supposed to be singing hymns. Going to the beach, that's wrong. 
right? Why? Because you have all these women out there with these bikinis and you know, that's, that's, that's just not right. Well, well he, he, here's my argument. Um, maybe don't look at the woman in the bikini. Maybe just go to the beach with your family and have some fun and enjoy God's creation. Maybe the problem isn't with the beach. Maybe the problem is with you, brother. Smoking will send you to hell. I've said it before, smoking does not, does not send you to hell. It'll make you smell like you've been there. <laughs> All right, but it will not send you to hell. And I've gotta say this because I'll get emails. It's, if you haven't heard this, it's bad for your health, okay? Just wanted to say it so you can save your email. Going to the movies is wrong. I've heard this before. What if the rapture happens while you're at that movie? And my thought is, I'll miss the rest of the movie, right? I don't understand what the issue is. Tattoos are sinful. Again, pulling verses from the old law. Having a glass of wine with din dinner is a sin. Now you hear, hear how quiet it is right now? Because this is the controversial one right here. And so instead of preaching a message on alcohol and Christians, let me refer you to gotquestions.org. That's gotquestions.org. Type in what does the Bible say about drinking alcohol and you'll get a good biblical view whether or not having a glass of wine with your dinner is a sin or not. But see, here's what we try to do. We make up man-made rules and we try to enforce it on other people and give them a guilt trip. And so just like in Jesus' day, poor Christians are walking around under the law and they think Christianity is too hard. I'm just gonna quit all this nonsense. And we're gonna have to stand before the Lord and give an account of why we added man-made rules on people's heads that caused them to quit walking for a God who's full of love and grace. And, and if I sound passionate about this, I am, because this is my background. And you need to know, as long as I'm the lead pastor here, legalism will not be part of this local church. <laughs> Period, ever. Now, let me say something briefly to those of you who have liberty to practice certain things that the Bible is silent about, okay? And there are things the Bible's silent about. And so if you have liberty to practice things that the Bible is silent about, let me encourage you to please go, <laughs> let me give you the verse, to Romans 14, 13 through 23. Okay, so if you have liberty, for example, to have a glass of wine with your dinner. Okay, please read Romans chapter 14, verses 13 through 23, because what you'll find there is that Paul is teaching a principle in God's word, and what he's saying there, I'm gonna go ahead and read it to you, um, Romans 14, it, it is good, listen to this, it is good not to eat meat, yeah, that means unkosher meat, it is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. Okay, and so if you have liberty to do certain things that the Bible is silent about, practice your liberty in private. Don't flaunt it, causing some people who have a personal conviction against that to be shaken in their faith. You don't wanna do that. So that's for those of you who have liberty. Those of you who don't have liberty to practice certain things the Bible is silent about, let me just say, 
You have personal convictions. I respect your personal convictions. But please do not enforce your personal conviction on other people. Because if you do that, you're doing what the Pharisees did. And Jesus said, stop teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. All right, let's move on. Verse nine. It says in verse nine, he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your, what? Tradition. For Moses said, okay, this is God's word through Moses. Honor your father and your mother. And whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or mother, quote, okay, so this is a guy talking to his mom and dad. Whatever you would have gained from me is Corban. That is given to God. Jesus then says in verse 12, then Pharisees, you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down and many such things you do. Okay, so what is Jesus doing now? He's giving examples. It's not enough to teach the word of God, you gotta give life examples. And he says, guys, you guys, you are promoting man-made rules, and as you're promoting man-made rules, you're ignoring God's word. For example, the fifth commandment. Exodus chapter 20, verse 12. Honor your father and your mother. And so it's very clear in God's written word, which we say is the final rule, it's very clear that we're supposed to honor our parents. And so what does that mean? That means we respect mom and dad, no matter how old they are. That means that we care for mom and dad when they're so old they can't take care of themselves. Ladies and gentlemen, who took care of you when you were a little kid and you couldn't feed yourself? Mom and dad, right? And so if they took care of you, God says you take care of them. You respect them, and not only that, you honor them, and not only that, when they're in need, you take care of them. Now, I have to say this, that when you leave home and you get married, you've established a new home. So it's not like you have to obey everything that your mom and dad says after you've left the home. I gotta clarify that uh, so you get a whole picture. But, but here's what the Pharisees were doing. They were ignoring that commandment to establish their man-made rule. It revolved around the word korban. Okay, what is korban? It means a gift offered or to be offered to God. And so who, here's how it went down in the first century AD. Somebody says, I hate my parents. <laughs> I can't stand them. They've not been good to me. And therefore, mom, dad, I know you're old. I know you're in need. But this savings of mine, I pronounce korban over this savings. I'm gonna dedicate my personal savings at some point. Hey Rabbi, someday I'll make a don donation in, at the temple. But I'm dedicating this money to God, therefore the Pharisees just said to me, you don't have to give it to your parents. And Jesus was livid. And Jesus says, hey, what you guys are doing is you are ignoring God's word to promote your man-made rules. And it's not right. Look at verse 14 now as we continue. Because Jesus is not done yet. 
And he called the people to him again and he said, hear me all of you and understand there's nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. He's talking about food. Okay, so nothing on the outside that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, then are you so also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him? Since it enters not his heart, but his stomach and is expelled. Now look at the very end of verse 19. Thus he, Jesus, declared all foods, what? Clean. Okay, when did Mark write the gospel of Mark? Scholars believe between 50 and 60 AD. He's writing about something that happened right around AD 32, 33. And so what is Mark doing at the end of verse 19? He's making a parenthetical statement. He's saying by Jesus teaching what he's teaching, Jesus is declaring that all food, please say all food, is clean. Okay, and so here's what you need to know if you're new to the Bible that in the Mosaic, the Mosaic Law, they had all these dietary restrictions. Some animals were clean, some animals were unclean. Some meat was kosher, some meat was not kosher. And so if you're a good Jew, you're under the Old Covenant, and you wanna kill a lamb and enjoy a leg of lamb, praise the Lord. You wanna kill a cow, have a steak, praise the Lord. But you can't kill a pig and have pork chops. And you cannot kill a little bunny rabbit and have rabbit stew, right? Those are dietary restrictions in God's word. But what you need to know, if you're with me, say amen. I know this is a lot of information, but you gotta get this as we rightly divide the word of truth so you don't put up with legalism in churches. After the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, those dietary restrictions ceased. It's the old covenant. We live under the new covenant. As Christians, we're not under the law. We're under what? Help me out. Grace. Grace. And so when it comes to the ceremonial laws, like the Jewish festivals, sacrificial system, clothing restrictions, circumcision, Sabbath rules, dietary restrictions, we're not under the law. As you have your devotions through Leviticus, just thank God I'm not under this stuff anymore. You're not under the law, you are under grace. You have freedom. And by the way, um, I'm gonna reread verse 15, and by, before I do that, let me just say that that, that, was, um, that was confirmed to Peter. You guys remember when the big sheet came down in Acts chapter 10? There's Peter and he's on the housetop of Simon the Tanner and he has a trance and here comes the sheet. And you guys remember what was on the sheet in his vision? All this unclean food, these unclean, unkosher animals. And he hears a voice from heaven, rise Peter, kill and eat. And Peter's response is, no way. I have never eaten anything common or unclean. And God said, don't call common what I have cleansed. Okay, what, what is he saying? Primarily he's saying, you Jews who think the Gentiles are unclean, guess what? I accept 
and love the Jews through the shed blood of my son, Jesus Christ. I love the whole world, the gospels for the whole world. That's the primary translation. The secondary translation is the old covenant is done with all of his dietary rules. The new covenant has come and Jesus, end of verse 19, has declared that all food is clean. And so as you look again at verse 15, please look at this, we're gonna reread it. There's nothing outside a person that is going to defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. So here's the point, so it's crystal clear for you guys. Food cannot defile us spiritually. What defiles us is what comes out of our what? It's a matter of the heart. Last three verses, look at verse 20. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality. Okay, and so even though I'm very soft on man-made rules, I'll be very strong here. The word in the Greek is pornea, from where we get our English word pornography. So if you're involved in pornography, if you're involved in any sexual activity outside of marriage, the Lord says, that'll defile you. That's in the written word of God. What defiles a man? Evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting. Can you see Jesus? He's preaching now to all these people. He's naming sin. Coveting, verse 22, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. And so here's theology 101 as we begin to, to wind down here. Theology 101 is this. We've received a sin nature from the first man, Adam. And because we received a sin nature from the first man, Adam, our hearts are corrupt. You say, how corrupt is man's heart? Jeremiah tells us, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And that's all of our hearts. That's the condition of man. And so what's the remedy for a corrupt heart? Here's, here's what some people say. Here's what religious people say. Well, brother, you gotta try harder. You gotta keep all these man-made rules. And if you keep all these man-made rules, then God will accept you. <laughs> That's wrong. I wanna illustrate it to you this way. Did you know you can remove a pig from a pig pen? <laughs> Isn't he sweet? You can take a pig out of the pig pen, you can dress that thing up, put a bow on around his neck, but eventually he's going right back to the slop. You know why he goes back to the slop? Because he has a pig's nature. Okay, you and I are born with a sin nature. We received it from Adam. We can keep a long list of man-made rules taller than me, and guess what? Through willpower, that may work for you for a little while, but eventually you and I are going right back to the slop. We have a sin nature. So what's the remedy for a corrupted heart? 
The only remedy for a corrupted heart is a heart transplant. We need a whole brand new heart. Where does that come from? It comes from Jesus Christ. He's the only way, the truth, and the life. This is why he says, no one comes to the Father but through me. Religion doesn't work. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. He can change your heart. He said it through Ezekiel. And so way back in, um, I think it was the fifth or sixth century BC, God promised to Israel, the nation of Israel, through his prophet Ezekiel, hey, someday I'm going to, I love you, I'm going to redeem you. And we know as we study the Bible that when Jesus comes back, second coming, all Israel will be saved, okay, so, so we know that. But, but here's what we know, what we forget. We forget that that promise is for us. The promise for a new heart is for everybody, Jews and Gentiles. Here's the promise right here. Ezekiel 36, 26 through 27. God says, I will give you, what kind of heart? And a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I'll give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. He said, I'll give you a new heart. Stop trying and just start trusting me. All right, so what does this look like? In conclusion, here's what it looks like. You and I are going our own way, doing our own thing. No, no thought of God, just it's all about our agenda. And then all of a sudden we hear the gospel message, the good news of Jesus Christ, which starts with bad news. We hear Romans 6.23 the wages of sin is, help me out, death. And we realize all of a sudden God is true and sin has to be paid for with death. And all of a sudden now the Holy Spirit's wooing us and convicting us because we know we're all sinners and we know we all deserve death. And so that's the bad news. What's the good news? The good news is God loves you even though you're a sinner. And so what did he do? He sent his son and the eternal son of God became flesh, was born of a virgin, lived a perfect life, went to a cross. And here's what he did. He paid for your sins and mine. What's the wages of sin again? Help me out. And what did Jesus do on the cross? He died. He paid your penalty. He took your punishment so you would not have to spend eternity outside of God in a place called hell. That's how much he loves you. And by the way, he paid for all your sins. There's nothing we can do to add to this. When we try to add to the finished work of Christ, that's legalism. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to your cross I cling. And so what do we do? We hear this good news. We turn around, best way we know how, from our sin, and we say, Jesus, I trust you alone. You're my only hope. And as many as received him, John says in John 1:12, to them he gave the right to become children of God. Do you want a new heart? Do you want all your sins to be forgiven? Do you wanna be a child of God? Turn to Jesus. He's the only way.